0: Well, good morning. On this Thanksgiving weekend, there is so much that we have to be thankful for. As uh, Pastor Willie and CJ have said, uh, God is so good. This beautiful fall season, the colors, amazing. Uh, a Father in heaven who is good and gracious. Jesus, our, our Savior, our Lord. The Holy Spirit present within us as our counselor and guide. We can be thankful for this church family and today, in a particular way, I'm thankful for my mother. Uh, I, God gave me a great mother, and she passed away on Friday, so the day before yesterday. And um, she was 90 years of age, and she had suffered with Parkinson's and dementia for a time. And so we are saddened, but at the same time, we're filled with gratitude and joy because she knew Jesus, she loved Jesus, she was the one who actually introduced me to Jesus. So I am thankful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, just the opportunity to come together and to gather in your name. We thank you that you're sovereign over all of life. And I thank you that my mother is with you today because of Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you that you're present to teach us. We ask that you would help us understand your word and and that we would know how to apply it to our lives in our day, that we might live for your glory. So we entrust ourselves to you in this moment. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. I was uh, reading the New York Times this week and I was intrigued by the title of an article. The title was Afghan Town's First Female Mayor Awaits Her Assassination. So Zarifa Gafari, uh, she's 26, and she is one of Afghanistan's first female mayors. Um, she... Is in the city of Maidan Shar, which is a, a, a city in a conservative province. The, the support for the Taliban there is strong, widespread. And my question was, okay, if she's serving as mayor and she knows that she's going to die, why would she do it? She fully believes that she will be assassinated while in office. Uh, Some time ago, actually just over a year ago, her family encouraged her to come back from India. She was studying for a master's in economics in India. And the family said, hey, come back to Afghanistan because the president, he's instituted these um, civil service exams uh, and uh, people will be appointed to mayorships based on, on merit. And so she came back from India, took the exam past obviously and she was surprised to learn through facebook that she had been appointed to the city of maiden shar and when she learned of her appointment this is what she said i knew i wanted to be there and try to change society so the president ashraf ghani appointed her empowered her to serve as mayor since uh, taking her post, she's received death threats from the Islamic State, from the Taliban, from the land mafia. And this is how she responds to that. I told them, I will claim my right to office if I have to set myself on fire in front of the palace. So she's determined. Why? Well, she believes that she is on the front lines of a cause that is really important to her, the empowerment of women in Afghanistan, and she's willing to die for it. So reading that story, I asked myself a question. What would I be willing to die for if Jesus empowered me to do it? What would you be willing to die for if Jesus empowered you to do it? When I think of my mother, she would have been willing to die for the salvation of her four sons. That was something that she was committed to. That was what was most important to her. What would you and I be willing to die for if Jesus empowered us to do it? You know, this word empowerment, it's a popular word now, now it is. Um, You know, financial institutions use it, retirement plans, educational institutions, even libraries. The Burnaby Public Library, if you look at their mission statement, they talk about empowering people through their service. Empower. And we often think about uh, us becoming stronger, securing our rights, becoming better through empowerment. What does it look like in scripture for a person to be empowered? Empowered. When we look at empowerment in scripture, is it all about us just getting stronger, securing our rights, and becoming more of just who we are, who we think we are? Let's read Acts chapter 6. I think the scriptures are instructive for us. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. If you grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you, it's page 914. Uh, And just before we read the text, let's remember the context Uh, the early church. The church has grown exponentially. The manifest presence of God is evident in the life of the church. Uh, There's an extensive healing ministry, signs and wonders, a profound oneness. The word of God is being taught. There's favor in the city of Jerusalem toward the church. But not only that, there's also opposition from religious leaders, and there's some internal conflict. Conflict, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles... And they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, wonderful things are happening in the life of the church. The church is growing, but there's also some grumbling. And we might say, well, that shouldn't happen. When God is so evidently at work in the life of the church, why would people grumble? Well, people grumble because they bring their stuff to church. It happened in the first century. It happens in the 21st century. In the Jewish world, there were some tensions between the Hebrews, the Aramaic-speaking Jews, and the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews. Spoke different languages, but there were also social and cultural differences, tensions. They went to different synagogues. And now they have come to faith in Jesus and they're in the same church. If we read through the first chapters of Acts, we see that there's generous sharing in the church. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. There's generous sharing, but obviously some people are being neglected. A fragile, vulnerable group, the Hellenist widows, are being forgotten. This wasn't the intention of the apostles, but it is happening. So what will they do? Will they do something that will escalate the crisis or will they make some adjustments, act with wisdom and enable the church to continue to grow? How do they respond? Well, the apostles, first of all, they're clear on their calling. They know what God has empowered them to do. They say, hey, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And why would they focus on those two things? Why prayer, for example? Well, in Acts chapter 2, The church is gathered, they're praying, and as they do that, they receive the Holy Spirit. Pentecost happens. Acts chapter 4, the church is facing opposition. Again, the church gathers for prayer. They pray for boldness. As they pray, the house where they're gathered is shaken. And they continue to proclaim the message of Jesus faithfully. Then in Acts chapter 13, the leaders are gathered and they're worshiping and they're praying and they're fasting. And as they do that, the Lord speaks to them and they set apart Saul and Barnabas. If you read through the book of Acts, actually if you read through the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, both written by Luke, you'll notice that the thread throughout these books is prayer. Robert Gallagher, professor at Wheaton College, he argues that every major event in the life of Jesus and in the life of the early church is surrounded by prayer. So the apostles have watched Jesus. They've observed his life. They know that prayer is very important to Jesus. They're going to carry on his ministry, so they devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. By teaching God's word, they're going to lay a really solid foundation for this early church. It's through the teaching of the word that the disciples are going to come to know what the values of the kingdom are. How do you treat Hellenists and Hebrews? What do you do with people that complain? How do you work for unity in the life of the church? Well, they're going to learn those things through the word. And so the apostles, they will teach the word and lay a solid foundation for that early church in Jerusalem and also for the church that soon will be scattered around the world. In light of their clear calling, how do they approach the crisis? Well, again, they recognize their calling, and then they see the need to restructure, to empower some new leaders so that the growing demands will be met. They empower the church. Did you notice it's the full number of disciples who discern the seven men? So first point on your outline. When God empowers us, we are affirmed by his people. Affirmed by his people. Has anyone ever affirmed you, encouraged you in the gifting that they see in you? My first experiences of empowerment happened when I was a a young boy. I went to church with my parents. I remember I was nine or ten years old. And one of the lay leaders at church, he said to me, before I even committed my life to Jesus, hey, you're going to be a shepherd. And I thought, why does he say that? I came to faith in Jesus at 19 years of age. One of the first things that I did was serve in a camp. And after a week uh, with a bunch of rowdy young boys, I remember some parents saying to me, Hey, Ray, you're a shepherd. I went on to to study and went on to, to graduate school and started to serve in the life of the church. And over and over again, people affirmed that shepherding gift in me. Most often, it was just members of the church like you and I. God has that for all of us. Every disciple of Jesus has been gifted by the Holy Spirit. And one of our roles in the life of the church family is to encourage one another, to affirm one another. Are you and I observing those around us? Who would God have you encourage today? Affirm on this Thanksgiving weekend. I was so encouraged this week when I heard the story of one of our church families that had gathered with some friends from church and they were affirming their son and just speaking into his life and saying, hey, this is what we see in you, encouraging him. What a gift, parents, that we have to be able to affirm our children. Now, depending on which culture you're from, you might think, and, and some European cultures are like this. Well, if we, if we encourage our kids too much, they're going to get proud. They're going to get big heads, think far too much of themselves. Don't worry about that. The people around them, the schoolyard, society will undermine them, undercut them, sideline them, mistreat them. We as parents and as members of the church family, our calling is to affirm people, to encourage them. So if you're a parent, do that. Um, I'm 32 years old. I hope you think I'm lying when I say that. I shouldn't lie from the platform. I'm a little more than 32. But the other day, my, my father, he uh, watched one of my messages online, and he said to me after that, good sermon, Ray. And even at my age, it's good to hear that, Right? And so one of the ways that we can really bless one another is by affirming one another, encouraging one another. All of us in this room, as followers of Jesus, have been gifted by the Spirit. And one of the ways that we honor Jesus is by honoring one another, encouraging one another. Affirm somebody today. What should they affirm? Well, in essence, they affirm what God has already been doing in the lives of the seven men that they choose. Men of good repute. Good character. You know, they're going to be serving widows, and these widows need to be able to trust them. Men full of the Holy Spirit, not full of themselves, not full of their own egos. Men who are wise, that can solve problems, that can handle delicate situations. So when God empowers us, we are first and foremost empowered by the transformative, enabling presence of the Spirit. That's the source of it, that's the core of it. Now notice something really important here. Often we think about the necessity of the empowering of the Spirit when it comes to prayer, for example, or worship, or preaching, or teaching. But here it is that seven men that are to serve tables should be of good character and full of the Holy Spirit. So... Whether you are serving God in the parking lot here at Willingdon or in some other part of the world, it is important, no matter what you do, that you be a person of good character and full of the Holy Spirit. The disciples, they select seven men who have Greek names, these Men with Greek names are probably Hellenists. They speak the language of the widows. They can get close to their situation, really shepherd the the widows through this moment. The apostles, what they do then is they pray over, they authorize the seven men. They commission them. And so again, when God empowers us, we are to be affirmed by God's people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and authorized by church leadership. They do that through prayer and the laying on of hands. At Willingdon, what I see is that volunteers, they often are the ones that mobilize other volunteers. Why? Because we know each other. We, we know people close to us, and we have the opportunity to encourage them, to affirm them. If the affirmation and the encouragement all depends on me, for example, I don't know everyone as intimately as I should or even could. And that's why we're a church family, so that we can encourage one another. And as people are encouraged, of course, church leaders should bless, empower. As Pastor Willie preached last weekend, if you didn't hear his message, then go online and listen to it. A great message on equipping. Church leaders are to equip and empower the members of the church family. God has something special for each one of us. Kids Ministries held an empower weekend last weekend. What was that weekend about? Well, it was about getting together with the volunteers, gathering the new volunteers, and encouraging them, affirming them, and equipping them, and then empowering them. And we pray that that will truly be a part of our church culture, our church family as a whole, that leaders will be multiplied, and at every level, volunteers, ministry leaders, staff, pastors, elders, will be multiplied and empowered In Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 6, this crisis that could have divided the church, that could have stunted its growth, it became an opportunity for empowerment. And what was the fruit of it? Well, the church remained united. The number of of disciples multiplied greatly. In fact, even the priests started coming to faith in great numbers. And don't miss this. This is really important. Who were the great evangelists of the early church? Well, the Hellenists, uh, Stephen and Philip and Saul and Barnabas and Timothy, as you read through the book of Acts, the great evangelists of the early church are the Hellenists. So what would have happened had the church divided in Acts 6? By God's grace, it stayed united and the gospel continued to be proclaimed and the kingdom was furthered. Now, This decision that was made by the early church, what did it mean for the seven men that were selected? Well, I think first and foremost, it meant that they had to humble themselves and just serve, submit to the decision made by the church and its leadership. Why do I say that? Well, if you get to chapter seven in Acts, you see that Stephen is a great apologist He's an amazing preacher. The word says that signs and wonders happen through his ministry. Philip, if you get to chapter 8, Philip is an amazing evangelist. Signs and wonders happen through his ministry. So Stephen and Philip could have said in Acts chapter 6, what? Serve tables? No way. We are preachers. We're evangelists. Signs and wonders happen through our ministry. God has so much more for us there's no way we're going to serve tables. No, that would never be, you know, something that would come from my heart or your heart, right? Thankfully, they humble themselves. They submit to leadership. And full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, they serve tables. So, point two, when empowered by the Spirit, Jesus will lead us to submit to church leadership. You see, when we're empowered by the Spirit, so often, what it will entail is a m- moments of real character formation and submission is core to that. In our society, as I said, when we think about empowerment, we think about you know, becoming stronger, being all that we could ever be, uh, securing our rights. When we read the Scriptures and people are empowered, they often have to humble themselves die to themselves, submit. When I was 26 years old, uh, I was authorized, together with my wife, to go serve in Brazil as a missionary. And our first years in Sao Paulo were really difficult. In four years, we served with four different lead pastors. So I was observing the situation, and I I said to myself, uh, this is dysfunctional, (laughs) You know, here I am, a a young man, and certainly God has much more for me. So I wrote to um, mission leadership, to to conference leadership, and I said, "Hey, there's a town in southern Brazil, and the church has this university center. No one's using it. It's right beside the federal university. Why don't you send Judy and I right there?" And you know what they said? No. Hmm. So I was very patient. I waited a few weeks. And I wrote another letter. I said, hey, there's a coastal uh, town, you know, in southern Brazil, and there's a new church plant there. Wouldn't it be great if Judy and I moved there? And you know what they said? No. I had a few more suggestions for them, and each time that I made a suggestion, they said no. So after bumping my head up against the ceiling of mission leadership and church leadership about four or five times, I said, okay, God. God. I really don't understand why I'm in this situation, why I've been positioned here, but please show me. What do you have for me? It took some time for me to understand my placement in Sao Paulo. But I had to learn a few things. One, when we submit to leadership, we're actually submitting to Jesus, our Lord. That's true for all of life. Whenever we submit to a person, we're actually submitting to Jesus, who is our Lord. I had to learn to depend on God, even when I didn't understand the situation. I had to learn, for example, that being empowered by Jesus to do something wasn't about me, it was about God and his kingdom. I had to learn that following Jesus actually meant following in his footsteps, dying to myself, something I wasn't all that willing to do. I also had to learn that before God could ever use me in any way powerfully, I had to be changed. My character needed transformation. Go through Scripture. Every leader in Scripture goes through a time, a period of character formation. You can go back to Moses, you can look at Joseph. You can look at David, Paul. Why is that? Well, whether it's in the life of the church family or outside of the church in society, you will observe that people often fail not because of a lack of gifting or a lack of ability, but because of a lack of character. It's because of their character that they most often fail. So God knows that. And he wants us to be formed into the likeness of Jesus. When you're in that season of character testing, it can feel like a wilderness. It feels like it was never going to end. God knows the season of your wilderness, but know that if you're in that season, God is preparing you for the rest of your life. It's actually good news. When I was going through that wilderness season there in Sao Paulo, I was always often asking this question. God, can I really trust you? This moment is so difficult. Can I, I mean, I gave you my all. Can I trust you? That's not the right question. The not, right question is not whether we can trust God. The question is, can God trust us? If God is actually going to put something in our hands, can he trust us with it? If he is ever going to put a family or a church family in our hands, can he trust us? That's why God works on our character, prepares us for what he has for us in this season and the next. And one of the really important lessons is submission to leadership. And if you don't learn this lesson early in life, you will continue to bump up against it for the rest of your life. It's so painful to observe some people that are in their 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s still having to learn this lesson. It is painful We're to learn it early on. Well, Philip and Stephen, thankfully, they submit to leadership, and we see what happens in their lives in the following chapters. As Stephen ministers among the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, he preaches the word great signs and wonders happen. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then in some measure, that will happen. You will have the opportunity to share the message of Jesus through your words and by your deeds. And so when empowered by the Spirit, Jesus will lead us to proclaim his message by word and deed. What happens when Stephen preaches the message of Jesus? Well, he's opposed. The Hellenists oppose him. They accuse him of blasphemy. They take him before the the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. And Stephen is given the opportunity to preach this amazing sermon. It's actually the longest sermon in all of Acts. And what's the result? Acts chapter 7, verse 54. This is page 5- 916, Acts seven fifty-four. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So God grants Stephen this opportunity to preach a prophetic sermon empowered by the Holy Spirit and to be forever remembered as the first Christian martyr. Being empowered by the Spirit may end your life. Uh, Tertullian, a uh, church leader in North Africa. In 197 AD, he wrote, uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and that has been true throughout church history. Now, you may not have to give your life, die physically the way that Stephen did, but if you are a follower of Jesus, most certainly you will need to die to self. That is the journey. In this moment when Stephen is dying, something amazing happens. He sees Jesus Standing. When we read through the scriptures, Jesus, after his resurrection and ascension, he sits at the right hand of the Father with authority over all things. But in this moment, he stands. The only time in scripture that Jesus stands. He stands to advocate for Stephen, to welcome home his disciple, to welcome home the first one to die in his name. Through his ministry, his martyrdom, Stephen comes to know the power of Jesus' resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, as Paul will later write. He comes to know Jesus personally and to carry on his ministry. That's the mission statement of our church, and it's so easy to say it, but do we truly want to live out his implications? Stephen did. Stephen follows in the footsteps of Jesus. Just as Jesus entrusted his spirit to the Father, Stephen entrusts his spirit to Jesus. Just as Jesus forgave his persecutors, so Stephen forgives his persecutors. He follows in the footsteps of Jesus. So when empowered by the Spirit, Jesus will lead us to, and this is important, be a people of forgiveness. And why is that so critical? Well, if we start to follow Jesus, it won't take long before we face some opposition. (laughs) Someone will oppose us. We'll face some relational conflict. It's part of the journey. And how will we respond in that moment of conflict, in that moment of struggle? Perhaps some of you have followed the story of um, Botham Jean. Botham Jean was murdered in his apartment by a police officer, Amber Geiger. And when Amber Geiger was sentenced to 10 uh, years in prison for the murder of Botham Jean, uh, Botham's brother, Brandt, uh, made a victim impact statement. And I'd like us to watch it. Let's watch it. That's a powerful testimony, right? That defies explanation. How could he forgive the person that took his brother's life. And unjustly, right? We would say. Well, I believe he was able to do that because of the grace that he had experienced in Jesus. And having experienced that grace, he was able to extend grace to Amber Geiger and genuinely forgive her, demonstrate love to her, hug her, bless her. Encourage her to consider Jesus. Every person in this room has been wronged by someone, right? That's part of life. That's part of the journey. All of us have been undermined in some way, sidelined, marginalized, mistreated, misjudged. The question is not whether that will happen to us or not. The question is, what will we do about it? Will we forgive As followers of Jesus, we've experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. None of us deserve to be saved by Jesus. We've been saved by grace. We've received a new identity in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit within us is present to enable us, to empower us to forgive, to extend grace. And most often, those that we need to forgive are really close to us, right? It's a parent, it's a sibling. It's a neighbor. It's a fellow church member. It's um, a colleague. It may be a pastor. The journey is one of forgiveness. We're empowered by the Spirit to be people of forgiveness. Now, sometimes we feel justified to sit there in in our anger or our bitterness, our negative feelings. We nurture that. But you know what? When we do that we're right where our enemy, our spiritual enemy, Satan, wants us. Because when we're in that place nurturing those negative feelings, we're disempowered. We're immobilized. We're paralyzed. We can't move forward. We actually can't embrace what God has for us. And that's why on this journey of following Jesus, it's so important to forgive and to be set free and embrace for ourselves, the forgiveness that God has for us, and then extend it to others. So is there someone that you need to forgive? And if there is, when I ask that question, that name of that person probably comes to mind almost immediately. Most times when I ask the Lord this question, is there someone I need to forgive? There is. And sometimes the list is much longer than I would want it to be. Forgive that person. We're people today. Stephen, he gave his life. He gave his life for Jesus and his kingdom. What an honor. And God used the death of Stephen as just a pivotal turning point in the life of the early church. Acts uh, chapter 8, verse 1. So the apostles, they stay where they are, but other believers are being scattered now from Jerusalem to other parts of Judea and Samaria. Saul is engaged in systematic persecution of the church. He's dragging people out of their homes. He's imprisoning men and women. And what do the disciples do? Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. And proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now, just take a look at Philip's life for a minute. Stephen was just martyred in Jerusalem you would think that he would just shrink back. Oh no, what's going to happen to me? He not only continues to preach the word, but he goes to Samaria. The Samaritans hated the Jews. What did he think? Well, he was led by the Holy Spirit to Samaria, and as he proclaimed the gospel, and healings happened, and signs and wonders and demons were expelled, many came to faith in Samaria. And then the Lord takes him to encounter an Ethiopian eunuch who's just been in Jerusalem, has all kinds of questions about the scriptures, and God takes Philip to the Ethiopian to share the message of Jesus. What's happening? Well, in the life of Philip, Acts eight is being fulfilled. But you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth God then takes Philip from the Ethiopian eunuch to Azotus, and from Azotus he preaches the gospel all the way to Caesarea, and it seems that he stays there for some time. Later on in Acts, we read that he has four daughters that prophesy. When God empowers us by his spirit, Jesus will lead us to serve wherever he takes us. So the location may change, the circumstances will change, but the calling of God The ministry that God has for us, very often it will be the same. It's just a change in location, a change in time. I had coffee with um, Kevin Garrett uh, on Wednesday. Uh, Kevin and his wife Julia, when they graduated from the University of Toronto, they moved to China and they served God there passionately for 30 years uh, in education, in social enterprises. Did a beautiful work. And then after 30 years of serving Jesus in China and North Korea, suddenly they disappeared. They were abducted and imprisoned and came under interrogation. And Kevin says that during that time, it was really hard for him to understand where God was, what God was doing, surviving, he said, took every breath But while in prison, they're in a small jail cell with 13 other men, many of them drug traffickers, men who had committed murder. During that time, as he read the word, thankfully, he had a Bible. As he read the word, God spoke to him, revealed many new things to him through the scriptures. He experienced God's palpable presence with him. And he had the opportunity to share the message of Jesus with those that were in prison with him. And he had the joy of seeing lives transformed. Kevin and Julia are going to be here in two weeks, October 26 and 27. So mark it on your calendar. Come hear their story of how God worked in their lives when they were imprisoned. Kevin was in jail for 775 days. That's more than two years. Without understanding why he had been imprisoned. So they'll be here in two weeks, but I tell that story because Kevin and Julia, they now live in New Westminster, and they continue to serve Jesus where they are. They serve Jesus across Canada. They're involved in a really important ministry in Myanmar. God has empowered them by his spirit and Jesus leads them to serve wherever they are. And that is to be true for us as well. Our stories may not be as dramatic as that of Kevin and Julia or the story of Stephen or Philip. But if we are disciples of Jesus, then we have received the Holy Spirit. We have been gifted by the Spirit to do things for Jesus and his glory. Being empowered by the Spirit, being a part of the church family, we are to encourage one another, affirm one another. So I would encourage you to do that. Ask the Lord whom you would have He would have you encourage today. As leaders in the church, our one of our roles is to empower, to authorize, to commission God's people for service. If we begin to embrace what God has for us, we need to know that there will be times of character formation. There may be moments of wilderness where we don't understand what God is doing. But in those moments, God will be at work, completing or fulfilling his sovereign purposes. If we follow Jesus, we need to know that there will be times of conflict. We will need to learn to forgive. That's part of the journey. That's part of being like Jesus. Learning to forgive others. Extend grace, love, bless. And then we'll all have the opportunity. No matter what our gifting, no matter what our background, where we are in life, we'll have the opportunity to share the message of the love of Jesus through our words and through our deeds. We can serve Jesus wherever he takes us for his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. As we pray, I just want to take a few moments for silent reflection. And uh, I want to ask or invite you to ask uh, Jesus a few questions. Lord, what have you empowered me by your Spirit to do? And if you don't know what that is, ask the Lord to show you. Lord, who would you have me encourage today? Jesus, whom do I need to forgive today? Maybe you're having a hard time understanding what God is doing in your life in this season. Ask the Lord how he is at work. Jesus, how are you at work in my life today? How are you shaping me? And then let's commit to following Jesus with all that we are. Now I want to pray over us a prayer that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, Thank you, Father, that we receive our name, our identity from you. And that it's by your grace that we've been saved, that we enter into the riches of your glory. Thank you that you're present to strengthen us through the power of your Holy Spirit in our inner being. Lord, may you dwell in our hearts richly. May we be rooted and grounded in your love. May we have the strength, Lord, to comprehend with your people around the world what is the breadth and length and height and depth of your love. May we know your love that surpasses all understanding, all knowledge. May we be filled, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly then all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Amen, God bless you. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend.